Hello and welcome to After the Facts with me, Matthew Blackman. Today we're going to be looking into the Angolan elections on the 24th of August and the rise of UNITA and their new leader, Adalberto Costa Jr. To many in South Africa, UNITA being back in the news might come as something of a surprise. To many of us, UNITA was simply the organization headed by Jonas Savimbi, who the apartheid government supported in the Angolan Civil War. But they have a new image and a new leader, and they are making grounds in urban areas like Luanda, amongst the youth in particular, and even, possibly, amongst the old MPLA supporters. And we're going to look into whether there might just be the possibility that the MPLA will lose the elections. In this, we're going to be joined by Justin Pierce of Stellenbosch University, who's a historian of Angolan contemporary history and a political commentator from Luanda, Claudio Silva. Let's get into it. So I guess the first thing one needs to be aware of is what has happened in Angola in the last 10 years. So as most people might know, Angola from 1979 was ruled by José Eduardo de Santos. He was the ultimate victor of the Angolan Civil War and he ruled all the way up till 2017. And in the last few years of his rule, we began to hear more and more about the corruption that was rife within his party, the MPLA, and that many members of his family were involved. And this was, of course, a great tragedy because Angola is one of the richest biggest economies in Africa. It has incredible oil reserves, um, but it also has really diabolical poverty, and at least half of the population live under what is called extreme poverty. But in 2017, a new president took over. José Eduardo de Santos stepped down, and Jean Lorenzo took over. But as Professor Justin Pierce tells us, Lorenzo came and has come with his problems. For Lorenzo, as far as Dos Santos was concerned, he was the least bad option. You know, Dos Santos hoped that Lorenzo would come to power and look after the interests of the Dos Santos family once he was in power. And it, it was also necessary to have somebody who had the trust of the army and the, the security forces as, um, as Lorenzo did. I think Lorenzo realized that the best way of gathering any legitimacy for himself was then to act against Dos Santos. Um, you know, I think he read the public mood. He knew that the MPLA's credibility with society had declined rapidly as a result of Dushantosh, and therefore what he had to do was to distance himself from Dushantosh. He did that by making 
some very, very visible moves against corruption. Obviously, the, the measures against Isabel and against uh, José Filomeno were the most high profile. Um, and, you know, I think this was because Lorenzo had come to power with very, very little political capital. Santos had handed over in the midst of an economic crisis that Lorenzo really didn't have it in his power to address. So, you know, knowing that he couldn't really address the economic grievances in the country, mm. the unemployment, the high cost of living and so on, um, the best thing he could do would be to be seen to be acting against uh, the legacy and the heirs of, uh, of Dushantos and trying to clean up some of the corruption which, which had been put into place under the Dushantos regime. You know, there the, the have been there have been measures made to improve the professionalism of the, yeah, the judiciary, the prosecution service, and um, also the police. Um, look, I'm not in a position to say how far exactly exactly it's it's gone. There are certainly allegations that political favors have been done in the grant the, the granting of tenders and, and contracts under under Lorenzo as as there were under under Dos Santos. Um and you know also although there have definitely been advances in terms of civil liberties and the rule of law. I think Lorenzo has demonstrated that he is also willing to resort to the security forces against against peaceful demonstration, which, you know, happened um, what, uh, no, November, November last year. You know, on the one hand, there hasn't been the kind of mass detentions and imprisonments that you that you got under the Santos against against dissenting voices. But, you know, certainly when he can't deal with the the causes of protest, he is willing to um, to resort to force to, um, to, uh, to to tackle demonstrations against it. Claudio Silva, a political commentator from Luanda, agrees with Pierce's assessment, but he offers something more about what was happening on the ground at the time. But it should be noted that Juan Lorenzo was incredibly popular when he came into power and decided to uh, decided to tackle corruption. That was one of his main objectives. And, he, and he, he tried to. I mean, for the first time in our history, we had politicians and, you know, generals being accused of corruption and, and being formally accused by the state and having to go to court. That quickly began to falter because a our courts are not duly equipped to tackle corruption cases because they have never done so in the past 46 years of angola's existence and because the electorate started seeing lorenzo's battle against corruption as being incredibly selective but i think what hurt lorenzo the most was that people in his own cabinet were also accused by you know investigative journalists like Afelmaltes or by Portuguese press of being corrupt and there was ample evidence presented in the court of public opinion, you know, bank statements and yachts and mansions in Portugal and whatnot, and nothing happened to them. So people sort of realized, oh, there is a there's a there's not a standard process here. It seems that he's only going after Santos' old allies and not people in his own cabinet. His image and his standing among the population, because he was a very popular president in the first months of his presidency. And he squandered all that. And the other 
problem that the, the Lorenzo has is that he belongs to Empala. And Empala has just lost so much support among the population, especially the younger population, because they're seen as incredibly corrupt. This current administration has tried to blame Dos Santos for all the ills of the society. But it's clear, I think it's clear to a lot of people that are going to be voting, that the rot is much deeper and the, that the rot is within Empala. Empala is very unpopular because the society sees him as just incapable of, of, of adequately making use of the plethora of resources that this country has and sees them as people that enrich themselves to the detriment of the general population. And invariably, Lorenzo will be tarnished with the same brush that the MPLA is tarnished with. And the MPLA are facing a distinctive problem. The rise of UNITA and its relatively new leader, Adalberto Costa Jr. Costa Jr. is seemingly, in many ways, changing the face of Angolan politics. Costa Jr. has been, in that sense, he was he was the right candidate for the times, in that you know his presence has kind of consolidated a shift that was taking place already within UNITA, you know, towards a younger and more urban support base, you know, while not forgetting UNITA's traditional support base in the um, in the Central Highlands. I do think Costa Junior has managed to put out an appeal to people in Luanda, for example, that goes wider than the group of activists that started supporting UNITA already in about 20, 2015. But he's also got something else about him. It's eloquent and charismatic in the way in the way he talks and the way he puts forth his ideas. And this is a stark contrast to the way João Lourenço uh, speaks to the public. Claudia Silva tells us there's something more to Costa Jr.'s story than just that. There is something about his race and ethnicity that plays an important role in the local politics of Angola. And this is something that most people wouldn't be aware of. But also, I think something really interesting with Adalberto is that he's half black, half white, what we call mulatto here in Angola, and you guys call it colored, mm. I guess, in South Africa, which is completely against the narrative that has been crafted about Junita. Mpela has constantly portrayed Junita as a tribalist party, backward Africans that, uh, that, that, that are very into ethnicity. That, has, that, that is how Junita has been historically portrayed, especially in our, you know, I am Kimbundu, I am, I am from Luanda, my entire family is from Luanda. Luanda, cities like Luanda, Benguela, and Lubango are more mestizo, have more colored people, are more, more cosmopolitan than the interior from which Junita comes from, historically, right? And Empela has always been a party that has had white Angolans in it. And even when Agustino Neto died in 79, his natural successor would have been Lucilada, but Lucilada was pretty much white. So he was passed over in favor of José Eduardo dos Santos because at the time it was viewed as weird to have a white leader in recently independent Southern Africa. And then this irony now is that UNITA is a party, the only and the first party in Angola to elect uh, a mulatto, a mestizo person, as their leader, and that has completely befuddled Empala's uh, propaganda machine and even the historical figures within Empala, which has always been a party that has a lot of misuse in its leadership ranks. So some of the rhetoric coming out of the party, and, you know, the darker rhetoric, the more propagandistic rhetoric has been that 
although Beto is not fully Angolan and he's half Portuguese, so he shouldn't be the leader. And it's it's quite hypocritical, keeping yeah. in fact, as uh, keeping in mind that Mpela has in its in its cadres many dual nationals, Angolan and Portuguese. I think that's just pretty ironic, but a good indication about how Angolan politics have been kind of, you know, uh, this kind of upside down, if you will. So the question is then, just how well are UNITA doing? Do they really stand a chance of winning this election, as some people are saying? So there is a uh, civic member organization here called Muday. Um, they were cited recently in the New York Times article. And they have been conducting monthly polls around the entire country. So they have volunteers in, in almost every single province and in almost every single municipality within that province. So they've been conducting monthly polls since, I think, January. And in every single monthly poll that they've done since January until July, UNITA has maintained a, a around a 20% uh, margin of victory over MPLA. So UNITA right now nationwide, according to these polls, is hovering around uh, 50 to 55% of the vote compared to MPLA's uh, 30% at best. But just how is this possible in Angola? And how are demographics playing a role in this 20% margin? I believe around 73% of Angola's population is under 30 years old. It's one of the youngest populations on the continent and has one of the highest birth rates in this continent. The vast majority of these people have never seen civil war. They were born after Savimbi's death. It's, I think, it's normal and natural that people that have been alive for the entire, like their entire lives have been under Mpela rule, which has been quite poor, I would say catastrophic in some respects. It's, it's entirely normal that there's a generational divide between parents and their kids. In my family, which is, my family is, is, has always been Mpela, especially my mother's side, for example. But even they are voting, a lot of them are going to vote Unita because the situation has become untenable. But amongst, among the youth and among you know, people under 30 and, and people that are voting for the first time and people that are educated, there is a wide discrepancy and a wide support for, for, for Unita. And something that I think um, foreign press should realize is that there's this old tendency to say that Unita voters are from rural areas. But again, the demographics is don't pair with that, with that assertion. So the majority of the Angolan population no longer lives in rural areas. There was mass exodus from the rural areas due to the Civil War. So there was a lot of immigration into cities. So our urbanization rates are massive. And most people in cities are voting for UNITA. But my question is, why are they turning towards UNITA, an organization that was backed by the apartheid government. To me, as a 46-year-old, that seems odd. But both Justin Pierce and Claudio Silva have an explanation. That has no effect at all. Um, you know, um, the war ended 20 years ago. There wasn't really any fighting in Luanda after 1992. You have to be well over 40 in Angola to particularly in Luanda and you know you have to be over 30 anywhere else in the country to feel that the war still has an effect on today's politics you know what people see is the corruption and and repression of more of more recent years 
and they're prepared to get behind what whatever alternative seems viable. And you know, if you look at you know, if you go to the Central Highlands to UNITA's old traditional support base, and you talk to older people there who were around during the war, yes, they will have been aware of the South African support, but you know, in terms of their narrative of what the war was all about. That was UNITA soliciting help from the South Africans in its own interests, rather than the South Africans fighting a proxy war through UNITA, mm. which is how it tends to get, get portrayed in South Africa. I, I went to Angola for the first time about 20 years ago with the kind of South African idea of what, I, what Angola and UNITA were. Yeah, I, 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 I had to unlearn quite a lot of things quite quickly. But, you know, I think in the present day, just the fact that the war is so far in the past... Whatever you may have thought of Savimbi, there are far more pressing needs now. And the MPLA? Surely they must use this as a stick to beat Unita with. Matthew, it's still a big part of the government's rhetoric, but, but again, uh, MPLA constantly talks about war, and they do talk about the fact that Unita was supported by the apartheid regime. And even, and, you know, so Unita's support in the southern provinces like Kunen and Namib. Uh, are not as high as their support in places like Wambu and Luanda and Benguela. But again, I don't think Mpala realizes who the electorate is today because none of us were alive when we were the majority. People that are, you know, I'm, I'm 34 years old. I was not alive when the South Africans invaded Angola. People that are much younger than me are going to be voting in these elections. They were, they're 18 years old, 20-year-old, 22-year-olds that have absolutely no recollection of the war because they were not alive. So this does nothing for them. They want jobs, they want economic stability, they want better health care, they want uh, a stable economy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they don't really care who invaded who, who killed who. And the MPLA insists with this rhetoric and it just doesn't have much traction among the electorate anymore. People are willing to vote for change. And I think a lot of people abroad don't realize how much the electorate has changed and how, mm. how young the population is. So it seems like UNITA and Adalberto Costa Jr. could pull off a win. But will the MPLA allow them to win? In a free and fair election, potentially he could win. But, um, you know, it was, it was very clear from, from the 2017 election that uh, there was no transparency around the gathering and, uh, and tallying of votes. I think that they're not going to be so stupid as to give themselves 99% of the vote. But, you know, I don't think they would settle as long as they're in control of the process. They won't settle for less than 50. You know, I was in Angola about a year ago, and at that point, people were worried that um, the government was building yet another headquarters for, for the Electoral Commission, which will function just like just like the old one did. You know, it'll be where uh, votes never arrive and, um, and, and, and results are issued. And part of the problem, as Claudio Silva puts it, is how the international observers and the international community treat democracy in Angola. Because usually it's like uh, the, foreign, the foreign diplomats, say, oh, okay, nobody died in these elections, uh, there weren't people beating each other up, we didn't really see people stuffing ballot boxes or stealing them, so we're just going to consider this free and fair. But the reality is a lot more nuanced than that, and our elections are not free or fair. And nonetheless, even with this 
even with absolute power over state media and over the electoral process, MPLAT has still been losing votes. However, if the elections were free and fair, I simply do not see any way that MPLA could win these elections based on the mood on the street and obviously based on the polling that I've seen. So as most people seem to suggest, the elections will be rigged in some manner and the MPLA will win. But if UNITA does have around 50 to 55% of the support in the country, what is that going to mean when the MPLA pull off another rigged election? So people like Justin says this, Christina Hawk says this, most analysts will say, and I agree with them, that a party like MPLA does not allow itself to lose power in the ballot box. However, I will also say I have absolutely no idea what will happen if they declare themselves winners. I don't know. Well, there you go. It looks like there are going to be some interesting times in the next three or four weeks in Angola, and I will certainly be keeping in touch with the situation there. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Thanks so much to Justin Pierce and Claudio Silva for talking to me. I hope to do a few more of these podcasts. So wherever you're listening to this and on whatever you're listening to this, please check back at some point, give it a like, and I'll hopefully be able to make a few more. Cheers. Cheers.